Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We are highlighting adaptations from Season 9 over at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can purchase the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. We had a big Robin Hood series this season, looking at nine different versions on screen. Many were likely adapted from Howard Pyle's The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, including Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Disney's Robin Hood, Robin Hood Prince of Thieves, and the 1991 Robin Hood, and Ridley Scott's Robin Hood. Robin and Marion was specifically based on the ballad, The Jest of Robin Hood. And we really don't have too much to say about Robin and the Seven Hoods. We talked Dead Ringers for our David Cronenberg series adapted from Barry Wood and Jack Geisland's novel, Twins. Have you checked out that show? You know, I haven't, but I've heard great things. Two comedies from our Steve Martin series were adaptations, Pennies from Heaven from the BBC series, and The Lonely Guy from the book by Bruce J. Friedman. The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas was part of our Colin Higgins series, adapted from the Broadway musical. Spike Lee brought us Black Klansman from Ron Stallworth's memoir. And we looked at a trio of John Le Carey adaptations, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, The Little Drummer Girl, and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Plus, all three movies in our Agnieszka Holland series were based on books, Europa Europa, In Darkness, and Spore. La Caja Fall and its remake, The Birdcage, both came from Jean Poiré's original play. We also talked about Arsenic and Old Lace and Charade in our Gary Grant series. All of these were based on other material, and it is all available on our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book purchased supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations we've covered and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals.
I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Spore is over. It's time to unleash your animals. Okay, Andy, Spore, or, as they say in Polish, Pokot. Isn't it funny having a movie with a title that, in English, sounds like it's for... <laughs> Like, I'm sorry. I, I suppose I knew what spore was. Yeah. I had, you know, when I was a kid, my dad took me on some hunting trips. Um, but it's not a word that I use in conversation very often, but. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What is spore relating to hunting, please? Well, it's the, it's the leavings behind that animals leave so that, you know, if like you're hunting. Or poop, poop, or footprints, oh. or any of that sort of stuff, right? As you can tell by my question, I am not any sort of hunter tracker. It's also like the the smell, which I think we get in this film. You know, mm -hmm. kind of the uh, the leaving behinds of the beetles. That yeah, you know, pheromones, stuff like that. So I think that's kind of what it is. Spore was intended to be, yeah. which is interesting because it's different as meaning from the pokot title in Polish. Which means what? That is more of a term, uh, a hunter's term, uh, for the count of how many kills you had that day. Oh. Which specifically comes up in the film at the end when mm -hmm. they're looking at the, kind of the flashback of the photo and you see them with all their kills, talking about how many kills they had. And included in that number are, are her two dogs. Okay. Uh, that was, um, we should talk about that later. Um, so, and the book title, because it's totally different. Yeah, also. the book title is totally different than everything else. The book title is uh, Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead, uh, which comes from um, William Blake poetry, mm -hmm. which was a, a central part of her, our protagonist's effort uh, in the movie. Her pastime is translating William Blake into Polish. So, where it comes from here here's the thing about this movie it's the third of our little mini series here on the works of director uh, Agnieszka Holland this one is uh, directed by her and co-directed by her and her daughter right Cassia uh, Adamic yes which is which is uh, great good for them what a strange little family project this movie <laughs> um I, I'm not going to lie to you. I had a I had a tough time in the middle of this movie. I I feel like this is one of those films that um, I I deeply enjoyed until I didn't, and then I took a break and found I was a bit addicted to it. Um, I, I was addicted to how it unraveled at the end. But that middle block, we get a middle block that's all about the killing of the animals, and it was tough to watch. I guess I go back to. That, um, you know, D. Wallace, who once said about us, you guys are a bunch of wussies. And <laughs> yeah. I kind of felt like that at this movie. I feel like I have adjusted to a lot of different kinds of horror, but watching the wildlife getting themselves shot didn't care yeah. for that. 
Well, it is good to know that no animals were actually killed during the making of this film. All of that was um, pre-existing footage that they had filmed of animals combined with CG work to actually make all of those kills look like they were actual kills. That is, you know, that is a project that I think if you're a visual effects artist, that is the project you want to be on. Because you get an assignment that says, we want you to make cutting edge effects of an animal getting shot from a distance in the woods. And then we want you to degrade it and make it look crappy. That's your job. That is such a job. That's a job you can do while watching, you know, real housewives. You don't even have to put all your brain to it. What a, It's a cakewalk. Beautiful. It, well, you know, it's it's funny because it's it's. To a certain extent, it's the exact same thing that they do with people all mm-hmm. the time, right? In war scenes uh, yep. or um, disasters, whatever it is. It's just one of those things. They've gotten really good at creating um, living beings and then basically making them look like they are dying on screen. Ugh, and uh, it's, just, it's, it's a strange part of the art form. It It is a strange part of the art form, for sure. Um, but uh, that all underlies the big question how did you end up liking the movie after you watch it because you hadn't seen this before right this was your first i had not correct this was my first viewing of this film it's a little tricky to get here in the states it's it's a film that um uh, you know it's harder to track down because it just never got any sort of distribution here it it did it is actually streaming in uh, probably about five different countries around the world and then it has other distribution in other forms probably in another dozen or so beyond that so it's definitely accessible it's just not as readily accessible especially here in the states i uh every now and again we like to just say you know what if you're in the states just go pass hand go see this (laughs) this one's this one's for you rest of the world that's right (laughs) that's right the um so i I uh, went into this knowing it was probably not the sort of film that would find easy U.S. distribution. And so I think that helped me in my approach of the film because it's definitely a different type of movie. It's not basically a straight-up crime thriller, which is kind of what it's it's pegged as, right? It's kind of this, this older woman um, who is an animal lover kind of trying to figure out that you know, why these different people are dying, all all hunters of one form or another. And she starts saying that the animals are doing it. And it's uh, it's an interesting exploration. I ended up kind of liking it. Um, it's not uh, my favorite of Holland's films that we've discussed, but I found it to be a really interesting story in the way that it wasn't just a straightforward telling of a story. Because I think if you look at it as a pretty straightforward crime thriller, it is a little lacking. What I think Holland brings to it is something that isn't that kind of straightforward type of storytelling. There's this mystical element that you end up finding in the way that our protagonist is. I mean, right out of the gate, she's giving us astrological readings pretty much, you know? And that's definitely an element of the story as we get to know this really interesting woman um, who... uh, you know, I find to be a really fascinating character. I was mesmerized by Dujeko. I found her just spellbiting. Well, I, I can't wait to talk more about her performance by Agnieszka Mandat. But I think the film itself, it was the addition of kind of this mystical element that kind of 
was brought in because of the way that she saw the universe and also the way that the film builds to its final moments, which I, is something else that's very interesting to talk about. So there's a lot more going on here than a, just a straight-up crime thriller. And so I I think that there it's never going to be a successful film, I think, if you're just looking at it as a straight-up crime thriller. But I think if you kind of see it in, with some other aspects, you can find more to it. Would you classify it then as an activist film? That's an interesting perspective. I think that there could be some element of that. I think that there are a lot of artists and filmmakers who view themselves as activists. And so I don't put it past Holland, to who, who certainly seems like the sort of person who likes to push buttons, likes to kind of look at difficult subjects and approach them with uh, with perspectives that aren't necessarily the norm. I think that that element can make it seem like she's a bit of an activist and that this is a bit of an activist film. I mean, the reviews certainly seemed to kind of come out that way. I think that some of the media outlets in Poland said that Holland had made a pagan film promoting eco-terrorism, which <laughs> Holland just delighted to and wanted that on the poster because she thought it would attract more audiences. And, well, and that doesn't surprise me a single bit because she, I mean, I yeah. I get the feeling after watching her being interviewed over the last three weeks and, and seeing her experience as a filmmaker, it very much feels like she chose this project because she is the protagonist. Uh, and and how yeah. well she cast Agneste Mandat as as uh, Jusheko is it, because it feels like she has a perspective on things and she is a uh, a zealot in making that perspective known. Yeah, Holland said uh, this was at the New York Film Festival. She described the film as an anar anarchistic feminist ecological crime story with elements of black comedy and magic realism. It feels like <laughs> a lot that was shoehorned into this movie for being such a largely uh, sort of silent <laughs> kind of meditation on wildlife and landscape. <laughs> yeah, right. There's a lot. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on here. I so yeah. it's not a perfect film, but I I really like that she was doing something different with it and trying to kind of push it into different directions. At the end, I think that there are some elements that if you're if you're buying into it it probably will work fine for you. If you're not buying into it already, by the time that you have uh, the police character who is her buddy who uh, uh, pulls open his laptop and pushes the magic button that <laughs> that creates like basically an, an EMP and yeah. kills the power everywhere so they can escape, you're not gonna, you're not really into the movie. And I, I totally would understand <laughs> yeah yeah and and uh, i'll tell you uh, apart from that middle section where i just had a sour stomach at watching some of it and and kind of it was already late at night and i took a break i went to bed and i came back the next morning and i found myself really into it and i really loved the end of the film i loved the way things unraveled i loved the way they turn it on us because i i was one of those who did not know that she was the one, right? I didn't I didn't get it. I wasn't I, I didn't believe it. I thought that they would figure something else out. And um and honestly, I expect it to be kind of an Ari Aster. Oh, look, it is magical animals and it's horrible. Uh <laughs> and we didn't get that. We got this, you know, it was a true story. It was this is how it played out. And from what I understand, largely it's the experience of the book. And that's when 
the the whole magical realism of the EMP in this town, which is not great with technology, right? They barely mm-hmm. have cell service anywhere, uh, and suddenly they they are able to to make that happen. That's where the stars fell. I didn't I didn't buy it, even though the rest of the end, the ultimate resolution, and I think some of the the beauty of the the artistry of the camera work at the end of the film, I think was just perfect uh it, it those were perfect sequences it just i didn't i wasn't with that well i guess it's worth talking about then uh, we may as well just talk about it now because my question was when that happens are we and, and because we go to this basically it's a fantasy ending right yeah her dogs are alive they're they're all having this idyllic dinner with everyone there plus a new child and everything just seems so perfect beyond belief and then she goes outside she's you know running through the fields with her two dogs who are alive now the, that we had seen had been killed earlier in the film and then they kind of fade out of the screen and leaving just the landscape that really made me feel that, yeah, you know what, maybe we're seeing a wish fulfillment of an ending and everything at the EMP point and beyond is really kind of how she's wanting everything to go. We have some really interesting flashbacks throughout the film that we see in, in kind of like very very colorful you know the images are are the colors just pop when we go to these flashbacks whether it's her flashback or other people's and i feel like they're not necessarily flashbacks i feel like they are her vision of what she's seeing as far as in that person's past or in her own past it's kind of the way that she's seeing the world Mm -hmm. and i can't help but feel like the ending is another one of those where now all of a sudden we are kind of witnessing kind of her her view her hope of how everything is going to go at the end of the film and at that point when they're stopped at the police we never get to actually see what the resolution of the film is maybe they're arrested right there maybe that's the end of the film but in her mind it's not that in her mind they escape and have a happy existence outside of that. That's interesting, and it plays into the fact that we don't actually know what happened to Yanina um, because she she evaded capture, and that's as far as the book ends, is, is my understanding. That we don't know what happens to Dushenko, and so it would absolutely fit the the narrative that we move into fantasy land and um and and let us sort of resolve out of that. I actually don't mind that and I don't mind the way she fades out. I think it's an incredibly artful way to communicate this sort of uncertainty in her experience and I liked it. I really did. What I didn't like and what I think was not sold well was the fact that her police officer friend Dizzy actually has some sort of power over the city that I <laughs> Just, I just didn't didn't anticipate, and I didn't buy, and I think we could have gotten away with everything had we not taken what I see as a shortcut, using technology as a shortcut to get around a tricky plot hole. And yeah. uh, I, I don't like that. I feel like that was everything, all the other flashbacks, all the other experiences that she's been having. Um, I, I think all of that is earned in the film, and and uh, I. I I came away really satisfied with how she portrayed this character, how the character was treated, and then let down when they introduced what I I know you will delight when I compare it to a big fish kind of a an ending. 
Big Fish, one of my favorite <laughs> movies, uh, it is one of those experiences where you just you're, you're kind of in and out of of these fantasy stories, and um, and you know this is not that movie. Big Fish has already done that movie, right? Munchausen already did that. This I didn't need the sort of uh, that sort of superpower. I didn't buy it. Uh, that 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 element. I mean, they could have ended exactly the same way and yeah. just had them stop at the police. We don't see that whole thing, and and we just kind of assume they got away, or we just see the police let them by because they didn't hear the word or whatever it could have been. It didn't have to be that, you know. Yeah, it's but, it is it is flippant, right? It is. I think that. That just that little piece is uncharacteristically flippant for a movie that tends to be that has tended to be over the last two hours completely, you know, sort of sober. Uh, yeah, I don't know if it's completely sober. It's pretty. <laughs> I mean, there's definitely elements of, of craziness in the film. There's there is the black comedy. There is kind of strange happenings. But I do I do largely agree with you, though. I think the point is. That element, the fact that he's got this strange technological button that can wipe everything out yeah. uh, power-wise so they can drive away and get away scot-free, mm-hmm. d- that d- that really doesn't make any sense. The last couple of hours of the film, we actually get, I think, a really smart uh, discussion, uh, sort of narrative discussion on these various cultural collisions as told through this story. And, you know, not the least of which is sort of young versus old, right? This old woman who is uh, older woman who is essentially kind of put out to pasture, sort of. I mean, she is volunteering as an English teacher. All the kids love her, but she's the kooky old lady who comes in to teach English. Uh, We get a dose of uh, religious conflict, religious versus spiritual versus atheist. We get conservatives versus liberal. We get liberty versus authority, uh, uh, man versus nature, for crying out loud. The whole film is man versus nature. Um, it, these these sort of the, the vectors of approach of these conflicts that are portrayed in this movie, I think incredibly elegantly, um, uh, make it for a very satisfying watch. And again, uh, so my use of the word sober it might not be <laughs> not be on the money but but i do think it is it it makes for a um at least an attempt at uh addressing the complexity of what happens when communities are thrown into uncertainty like this probably um politically at the time um in poland i feel like holland probably knew that this would be pushing some buttons with the way that the country was going and it just i mean the way the world was really going by that point, right? And I think that it really makes a lot of sense the way that she uses this as an opportunity to really push those buttons and really kind of look at these different things. It's not always smooth. Sometimes I feel like it's a little on the nose, like some of the elements with the priest who is just so kind of the stereotypical, like hard-nosed priest who, you know, believed staunchly that that man was man and animals were meant to be subservient and all that you know it, i think some of the character caricatures of these characters was a little strong little as broad. far as the way that they yeah the way that they were played but but, but you'll I notice still, andy all of the broad portrayals they sure got theirs in the end <laughs> yes they did they sure <laughs> did well and that's that's an element that i think is uh is also worth kind of talking about just the way that what we're portraying here and all of this discussion, the, all these points you were just talking about, religious versus atheist, conservative versus liberal, 
uh, man versus nature. How does all of that fit in when you're doing this sort of crime story and when you're using it, having a director like Agnieszka Holland come in and tell the story with those points? And I think that's what she was really liking about the opportunity with this story. But I, I do think that it's something that does make for a more challenging film to to get distribution. And as we already pointed out, it, it couldn't even get distribution here in the U.S. Was it just, with all of these points, does it feel like too European, too much of that kind of foreign movie that, that you know, just kind of the, the U.S. barriers just doesn't allow it to kind of get through and have conversation about? I don't think so. And I think if you put David Fincher's name at the top of a movie like this, it blows up as a global phenomenon. It's another mm. or or, you know, it's another Gone Girl, right? It's not like we don't have movies that have taken on complex sort of uh, uh, sociocultural issues like this in a, in a horror context. Well, I mean, you're looking at a 60-some-year-old woman as the protagonist yeah. who also is a little insane and an astrologist and killing people. <laughs> <laughs> you think that's too European? Uh, it just it's it's it just strikes as a film that might be hard, like to for for U.S. audiences to really find they click with, <laughs> especially when it ends with such a a mystical way. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, you're right. That's that's what does it in. <laughs> that's that EMP. Damn it's it, the EMP. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, you know, I think so. I think it's a challenge, but I do think that it's not for lack of trying. And I think the cast, uh, I think this story in the hands of Agnieszka Mandat and again to uh, Victor Zborowski uh, as um, Swiatopek, uh, they are really good. They are so easy to watch and they do hard things in this movie. Uh, with absolute aplomb, they have their conversation smoking weed on the fire uh, is is one of those transformational moments in the film. And it's exceptionally difficult uh, to watch them, you know, discuss his his history, his family history and laugh about it and watch his the subtlety of his turn uh, as he starts talking about the truth. He is just an amazing mm. Uh, performer, and she is an incredible foil, and there is a lot of weight uh, on their shoulders to keep this movie moving forward and, and maintain interest. Well, that's what I loved about this film. I mean, there it's, and you know, I I said all that stuff earlier uh, about you know being too European. I mean, it's obviously a little cheeky because I do enjoy this film. I think that there are some really interesting elements in this film to enjoy, and this is what you're talking about is absolutely one of them. The way that this story unfolds with uh, Dusheko and and Bigfoot, and then you get Boris who comes in, and you have this strange little kind of love triangle that we have going on with these uh, older people, I found to be just really fascinating. And the way that she kind of gravitates to to Boris, um, but you have this like kind of this broken heart uh, with Bigfoot um, uh, as he's really drawn to her, but sees that she's being pulled by this other guy. I just, I, I just found these these people to be so interesting. And anytime they were having these slower moments with these conversations, I'm like, this is why Holland directs films like this, because you have chances to really, you know, have some interesting character moments with, with 
these people that you wouldn't necessarily get if somebody else was trying to tell a story like this. And you're right, the story that that uh, uh, Sweet Opelk, as we uh, kind of, you know, she's like, well, that's a that's quite a name. Uh, with his name, that's why I think she calls him Bigfoot. The way that he tells that story, it's just, it is really kind of just heartbreaking, the way that he's kind of spun this fiction about his life and how tragic it really is. I mean, it's it allows for a lot of moments, and you can tell that people in this part of the world are still really dealing with a lot of the grief and suffering that they had uh, gone through with kind of the period when we talked about in the past two films with Holland, with In Darkness and Europa Europa. I mean, there was just so much terror and horror that people suffered through with the uh, the Holocaust and World War II. Looking at, at it through these eyes at a much later point in life, as you're seeing it told in this crime thriller story that also has these other interesting elements, uh, I, I found it to be really fascinating. Yeah, I did too. I, I think they they did a fantastic job of communicating sort of the heart, and and it made me think that you know one of the things that you pointed out last week was that um, Agnieszka had spent uh, so long, longer than the Holocaust itself, uh, making movies about the Holocaust that she was done. But you know, watching this movie, I realized that maybe she's not done. Right. Maybe she's not done yeah. it just sort of, you know, existing in the emotional space, if not the literal sort of historical space of of communicating just sort of the narrative of that time in history. And and the long there's sort of the ripples in the pond that continue to impact uh, generationally. And I, I thought that was just beautifully handled in this movie. I think it was I think it was great. So whatever shortcomings I end up having about sort of the the big fishification of the movie. <laughs> of fantastical elements. I think the non-fantastical elements were handled very well. I, I think in particular the the setups that that she, you know, the the way uh Holland manages to to demonstrate the mechanics of the things that uh Dushenko was keeping, right? The parts of animals and and then later how she used them as as footprints to kind of create this image that uh it it wasn't actually a person who murdered all these people. It was the animals exacting their revenge. <laughs> and it wouldn't yeah, be the first right. time. And she starts going through the litany of of um you know of court cases decided in favor of animals being you know the murderers. Yeah, right. uh, it it's just sort of delightful. So even as off the deep end as she gets, I think they've they've successfully kind of given her a story that's believable to to the end. Yeah, I think so. And you know, just just another point, uh, following up on your Holocaust point. Yeah, I thought it was a really interesting element for her to bring into this film when you when she meets Boris for the first time and he introduces her to the cuckoo-juice hematodes, yeah. the little red forest beetles that they have there. And he's got the line, the death of the cuckoo-juice hematode larva, it's a holocaust and nobody knows about it. And, and I'm like, how interesting that in a non-holocaust film, she's, she is still finding a way to discuss holocaust, discuss ending a species. Yeah, yeah, I just I found that to be really in. interesting. Yeah, to to kind of continue that. It's not just people that that have to be part of the Holocaust. I yeah, I, I yeah. thought that was an interesting element. <laughs> You know, 
other thing that I, I was sort of musing on, and this is kind of a high level thing, but but I think the film has a perspective on this, which is the the uh, what we see in the film about power and authority, right? Who has it in the film? Who wields it in this mountain community? And and, and what is the perspective on like coercive authority versus just sort of, I don't know, the just raw power, like police power. And and there are some funny scenes that communicate that. Um, her, anytime she goes to the police and is totally disregarded, the way the police kind of operates... <laughs> is, I think, comical. You look at some of the black comedy elements that you were talking about. Their conversations uh, demonstrate, I think, repeatedly that they have no intellectual authority over the town. They have very little coercive authority over the town and even less so persuasive authority over the town. And in fact, the chief was on the take with the guy who runs the horrible, horrible hunting reserve next door to her land. And uh, I, I found it, it, it was one of those moments like we've had last time. She does an incredible job setting me up to feel like, oh, man, uh, I, I hate loving what she's done here. I hate feeling an <laughs> affinity toward the, the comic parts that I know are just awful. Uh, she does smartly blend kind of that comedy with it and gives you some really interesting characters to meet and just I, I don't know I found the characterizations of some of these people like um um the I can't remember his name now the guy who ran the farm uh, the little fox farm um you know that guy and then the mayor it just like I found them to be really interesting characters again sometimes a little too straightforward too on the nose uh-huh. But but on the whole, what uh, kind of an interesting way to kind of uh, kind of give us these people in this uh, in this strange little community? It was shot again. Um, I you know we talked a little bit about this, but it was shot beautifully um, uh, by uh, Yolanta Diluska, who is a returning character, uh, a cinematographer, uh, and Rafal Paradovsky. Um, and we talked about Jolanta last week with uh, In Darkness, mm-hmm. and right. I, I I found it interesting to look at just the opposites. Right, we get this the the uh, she has to spend you know however long they shot in the sewer, and now she gets to shoot in a field. And uh, I think she did an, an incredible job, uh, sort of balancing those things uh, and throwing drones in the air and giving us some unique perspectives on the landscape that uh, I think were refreshing um, parallels to or a refreshing sort of sequel to her visual experience within darkness. Yeah. And I I mean, both of the cinematographers had worked with Holland before, and I I feel like this was possibly of all the films what uh, the my favorite cinematography of her uh, films that we have looked at so far yeah. i mean we've talked about yolanta last week but and, and i really like what yolanta and and uh, Agnieszka did with the darkness in the sewers like yeah. i felt like they really captured just this raw authentic real darkness down there 
But the way they capture the forests, the way they captured, like there's one particular shot when you see the old man, he's standing out in the darkness, in the trees, snow is coming down, and he's only lit by like the car's headlights. And just the way that the lighting played in that scene was just beautiful. Like throughout, I just kept finding myself mesmerized by images from the film. It just, it was stunning to look at, just really, really effective in capturing really kind of this world of of uh, Dujeko and how she saw nature as this uh, this beautiful, beautiful thing that needed to be appreciated. It just felt like we were really seeing the world through her eyes. Well, and her eyes and the use of landscape, I think, was super compelling to me. Like they, she gave us a sense of these woods that uh, was unique, right? It was a new experience for me. I, we don't, we don't get to spend a lot of time in, uh, you know, Polish mountain woods uh, and, and they felt different. And I think they were captured incredibly well. These big wide shots, these, these shots that felt sort of impossibly tall for being portrayed. I mean, what I was looking at was just a, you know, 16 by nine, distribution of it uh but it the the way she captured sort of the height of these trees that seem to just go up and keep going up like they're legs of a giant spider right they're just nothing on them uh and these little tiny kids like walking this little class kind of traipsing through the woods i thought that was incredibly effective uh use of frame and um, and and just beautiful additions to the film all around not to mention the fact that we see it over so many different seasons yeah. and we get to get a real sense of these woods in spring, in winter, in summer. And it always feels a little different. What do you think of those little chapter breaks, too? I, I loved the chapter breaks, the way that they were defined by the hunting seasons. Yeah. <laughs> like that Ooh. was really genius to kind of give us that True. sense. And gross. Yeah. Genius and gross. Yes, truly. And the writing credits uh, uh, go to uh, actually the novelist uh, Olga Tokarczuk and Agnieszka Holland, who uh, I, I guess worked together on the adaptation. Yeah, I believe they did, uh, and I think they I think they did a lovely job. I have not finished the book well, yet, so you've read some of it though, yeah. so at least you can you can get a sense of you know how it was adapted to make this, and and you feel that they did a pretty fair job of taking it and adapting it. Yes, and I will say, a caution, I'm caution, cautiously optimistic that this opinion holds true throughout, that uh, I feel like the the adaptation, I think, works. Uh, it tells a story. I think the, the book itself is actually, um, it, it is more um, beatnik, I think, than, than mm. the experience of the movie. Uh, it, it actually really kind of, it leans more heavily into that side of Dusheko, uh, that that I think we don't we don't see quite so quite as much in the movie. So, um, gotcha. I, I really like that part of the character. So it was fun. It was like you know, yeah, it's that's my kid's grandma. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Also, I hope she's not a sociopath, uh, uh, murdering hunters. But it is what it is. <laughs> uh, so I and and to that point, you know, I did have this little this little twinge at the end. You know, all these hunters end up dead, and, and yet at the same time, like. Anytime you're presented with this, where these hunters are doing horrible things horribly, and they're demonstrated as horrible people, because not all hunters are horrible people. Let me just say that. I'm no, yeah, right. right. Uh, that these hunters are presented as if they are horrible people or stupid people, right? They're they're either those two, and that's the perspective of the film. And well, 
and men, white men, uh, totally white in this men, particular uh, part of the world yes. at this particular time. Yeah. So I think all of that rolls into yes. this very uncomplicated set of cultural sort of rules that define who yes. these targets are. <laughs> um, and, and as I'm watching that, uh, given what all of these guys did, at any point, did you find yourself thinking maybe these guys didn't suffer enough? <laughs> Is that gross? <laughs> like, maybe did you want them to have to squeeze into those fox cages and be beaten on a little bit? Just a little bit? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I like I said earlier, my dad, when I was a kid, took me on some hunting trips, and they were always very hard for me. I was never... I clearly not born to be a hunter. I did if not I was know that born your dad was a hunter. Thousands. He's not anymore. It's just one of those things that I think that he did because friends did. And it like, I mean, I remember once he took me out, took me and my sister out to hunt rabbits. And like, I just felt horrified by what he was doing. And then, you know, we would have to go out after he shot them and grab them, carry them back to the car. I was horrified by the fact that when I did that, like all the fleas from the rabbit started jumping onto me because I was warmer than the rabbit at that point, and it just freaked me out. Um, and then when I was older, took me on a, a hunting trip to hunt deer, and that was, you know, you're riding in a little four-wheeler through the woods with a dead deer next to you. It's just like these moments in my head burned there permanently because of these <laughs> trips. I'm like, I could just, I am not that person who can go yeah. out that and i mean i know a guy here in town i've worked with him a number of times he's you know very hardcore hunter and like the way that he views it i can appreciate because he is going out to hunt for food that uh -huh. is something that will sustain him and it's better it's, it's not full of all the chemicals that they pump into the animals that you buy at the grocery store and it's it's much healthier for you etc cetera, etc cetera. and there's an element to the hunt and everything and and so yes. i feel like you know he's doing it in a way where i can appreciate because at least he's doing it because it's sustenance and he's i, I mean i don't think he's doing it quite to the extent where he, every part is something that he ends up using in one way or another but still i i can appreciate that he is actually doing like what i call like authentic hunting it's not just like big game hunting yeah. just to have heads right. on his wall or anything right right He's trying to use yeah. every part of the buffalo. I, I do find hunting to be something that there it's it's such a a difficult thing to talk about because I get really frustrated with big game hunting. Yep. But at the same time, like I've heard like there was this great podcast that walked through it all, and I'm totally going off on a tangent now. But it it talked about the realities of it and and the two sides of what it why it happens and why you do that. And I was like, you know, I can totally see that other side. I don't like that. I can see that other side, but I think that there is some logic to it. It's just horrible, uh, you know? And so it's just, it's one of these things. I just, I am not part of that world. And I find the way she portrays the people here as the hunters, very just their, their archetypes, just straight up, straightforward cardboard cutouts of the type of people we don't like 
And the fact that they hunt makes us like them even less. Yes, and I absolutely agree with everything you just said. And the fact that I have a sour stomach watching it or thinking about hunting only means I'm not a hunter. <laughs> I totally get, like, I get why it is, it is, uh, you know, it's it's a recreational part of the lifestyle. I get it. For others, it's not me. And but the movie, the the Agnieszka Holland cinematic universe, presents us with. Hunters that are horrible people, and that's all we get. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, we don't have uh, the gentle, conscientious uh, sort of, um, you know, way of the mongoose sort of uh, hunter yeah. here. What, what we get are the horrible, drunk, uh, grandstanding, white people in power using that power to influence and gain more power, and then kill things. Right. You do it in a way where they can do it where they're not supposed to, yep. when, when they're, they're not, not supposed, supposed to. to. Yeah. I mean, yeah, all of that, all of that. And killing things they shouldn't even be killing, like her dogs. Yeah, that was that yeah. was awful. Now, I would say on that, on the, the, the just visual presentation of the reveal, that transition to the photo from photo to life was uh-huh. super compelling. Yeah. It was great. It was gross and horrible. And uh, I was on the edge of the couch watching as they it moved into the still photograph. And then the hair on the dogs started to move. And then and the people can, yeah. started to kind of move around. I thought that was beautifully, artfully constructed. It was done uh, really well. I, I will say that I knew exactly what she found when she was looking at that. I mean, it all comes from when they... Yeah go into the dead neighbor's house to because you know, he had died and she finds that and i i felt that that was an obvious giveaway when she sees it and then we never see what it is i'm like oh she just found evidence that this guy was involved in in her dogs getting yeah, killed i didn't see it i thought there was going to be something else but i didn't i did not uh i was not along with it i didn't know it was a photo or whatever but yeah. i did i knew she found something like a collar or something that Ugh. that yeah I, I wonder if that would be, have been a different experience for you on the big reveal, the big fishification of the end, if you didn't know that, or if you, you didn't know that it was a thing. I don't know. I actually think um, we feel kind of the same way about it, so I don't know why that would change anything. Yeah, I, I don't think it would change anything. I, I am the example the of what itself. that's like. Yeah, so. Um, Cassio, her her co-director, Cassia Ademik, her daughter, we um, did mention. It's just worth noting that um, that it was kind of a very collaborative director on this. Um, she is a director in her own right who has done a number of different projects, a lot of TV, as I kind of look at the work that she's done, um, lots of different TV projects, uh, Absentia, The Border, 1983, uh, just tons of different TV say work. It. And Say it. You know there's one you have to say. She didn't direct there... it, but she was in the art uh, department. Oh, Battlefield Earth. Battlefield so, Earth, Andy. <laughs> yes. That's right. Yes. It's one of her known fors. How do you That's not right. say that? I know. I know. I, I had skipped past that. I had forgotten that I saw that, but yes. Yes, she worked in the art department on Battlefield Earth. Uh, don't know. <laughs> Uh, she was a storyboard artist. Yeah. Uh, she did a lot of storyboard artists. So working with her mom all the way from the mid-90s on Total Eclipse. Uh, she worked with uh, Baz Luhrmann on his Romeo and Ju- Juliet. A uh, lot of other different things through uh, all the way in, in darkness. She was actually still doing storyboards with her mom on that film. So. <laughs> Thank you. 
I really loved the score to this film. I thought uh, Anthony Lazarkowitz uh, mm-hmm. did just a beautiful, beautiful score for this film that had uh, just a nice feel throughout. I, I thought it worked really effectively uh, all through the film. Yeah, it was it, it was nicely paired with the certainly the community. You know, it felt very much like it was a score that uh, that people who lived here would be listening to. Yeah, you know, like insofar as it felt fit what was going on on the screen, I felt very much at home with the the score. And yeah. you know, it, it it's off of um, you know in darkness too. Uh, we've talked about him with this, in darkness, and it was just sort of a very different uh, approach to to what we got within darkness, which was super environmental and not listenable. It was it, it worked really well for the film, but didn't feel like something you could tune into outside of that. Whereas this one really feels like something you could tune into totally outside of the context of the film. Yep. Yep. How to do it award season. It was a, uh, it was okay. You know, I, it, it received eight wins, 15 other nominations at the Berlin international film festival. It did. Uh, it was nominated for the golden, um, the Berlin bear, which is uh, the best film. It was nominated for that, but lost to the film On Body and Soul, which is an interesting little film that uh, I believe was nominated for Best Foreign Language Film over here in the States. It did win, however, the Alfred Bauer Prize, which is the Silver Berlin Bear. So it uh, didn't win the Golden, but it did win Silver. At the Polish Film Awards, it was nominated for six awards, but it lost all of them. Most of them to the film Silent Night, which I'm going to have to see now because I'm very curious about. Silent Night um, won Best Film, Best Director, Best Screenplay, Best Cinematography, and Best Sound um, over Spore. And, uh, you know, our brilliant Agnieszka, uh, uh, Agnieszka Mondat, our lead actress for this, was nominated Best Actress, but she lost to Magdalena Bosarska for The Art of Loving, the story of Michelina Wisloka. So, uh, so you know, it, it yeah, what are you going to do? Uh, but how about at the box office? I'm assuming that now you've put all of your research struggles behind you <laughs> and you've been able to find all of the budgetary information that you need to make a compelling case for APPFM. You know, the last film of our series, and yet again, I'm left with no budgets for these films of Agnieszka Holland. Ah, say love you. What are you going to do? This film is an interesting one, though, because I think, Pete, this might be the first film that we've discussed on the show that never, in fact, had any theatrical release in the U.S. outside of film festivals. Well, at least we know where the zero goes. It's uh, yeah, right. It's possible. I, you know, I I say that now. I'm thinking about, and I'm going to forget the name of the film. Um, it was a listener's choice. It was the um, the one with the woman in the in the big house, the kind of the religious themed film. Viridiana, Louise Bunuel. That may be the only film um, that com- comes close because it was banned, and so it was yeah. uh, it was only watched in secret screenings. Secret screenings. Mm-hmm. We should all be so lucky. Holland's crime film did open Poland. February 24th, 2017. It did run in film festivals around the world for a year, including six domestic festivals over here. It opened in a few other countries, but it never really found much of an audience. It did earn just over a million at the international box office, which isn't much in today's dollars. I have to imagine it cost more than that, and I have to imagine it is at a loss. But otherwise, that is all I have. (laughs) Uh, That's, uh, well, Andy, I... (laughs) 
know, this is a surprising film for me uh, to come out. I, I think I did. I did end up uh, liking the film. The question is, how far, how far did the stars fall? Because uh, I, I am, I'm, I find Holland kind of an entrancing director so far. I do wish we had, we, we maybe had shaken up the Holocaust movies uh, and done. <laughs> uh, a third film that would give us a little bit more breadth of of her work, but I think that the first two were were different enough Holocaust movies that it's, we we certainly got a, a a picture of the kind of stuff she can do. Um, I I think she's a she's a director who reminds me so much of her of of like I I just have have personified her in this role of Angeska Mandat's, you know, uh, character in this movie that now I have a hard time imagining her as anything else. She's a, she's a grandmother I would love my kids to have. <laughs> she's got a crazy uh, astrologer fan of the wolves. And uh, um, that's really funny. I, I didn't really think about that, but I'm like, you know, there's something to that. The fact that she, yeah. she does feel like she's a little bit like her character Dusheko from this film. Like I feel like there is this element within Holland and the way she tells her stories where she doesn't necessarily she's not looking for just straight up telling you a story. She's looking for a way to tell a story that has a little bit more to it, whether it's the theme or a message or kind of an artistic push, whatever it is. I feel like there is more to her work and I I generally find her very compelling and want to watch more of her stuff because um, I, I just think that she definitely... I, it's it's interesting that two of our recent directors that we've talked about, her and Spike Lee, I both feel have very clear artistic voices the way that they choose to tell their films and the stories that they choose to tell. And uh, I don't know, it excites me when I'm experiencing films like this even if it's not a film that's like straight up five star um i i still just find this to be just an incredibly fascinating movie yeah yeah i think you said something last week about her uh the way she strives to sort of tell the story in a way that's approachable and real and authentic and detailed uh and and i think you get that even when she falls off that particular wagon as she does in this movie uh, I, I think that that um, uh, those are intentional, right? You feel that sort of sense of intention that she's using it for for a, a real approach, right? She has a purpose, and um, I, that's that was my experience of this movie. That that the next day I already had new stuff to think about uh, mm-hmm. than, than that first watch, and that's what you count on. That's what you want. Yeah, right. Definitely. Let's take it to Definitely. the map. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies we've talked about on this very show. You swipe over in your show notes, you tap the word flickchart. It should take you directly to this movie where you can add it to your catalog and see how it stacks up against ours. First up, we have Spore or Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Spore, please. <laughs> you know, I, I love me some Kevin Costner. I feel like I'm going to say Robin Hood right here. <laughs> Oh, this is this is a rock paper scissors that determines this determines whether we go to the top half or the bottom half of our chart with this movie. All right, let's do it. There's a lot riding this one. Here we go. One, One, two, two, three, scissors, and it looks like Robin Hood takes it. Spore goes to the bottom half. Spore or the Brood? Spore. Really? I was dead set. You would say the Brood. You know what, Andy? I would have normally if the brood had been in the top half of our flick chart. <laughs> but you have ensured that I will pick Spore. 
<laughs> well, I will pick the brood here. All right. Here we go. There we go. One. One. Two. two three. three. Scissors. 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 Oh. All Spore right. takes it. Spore or the Great Wall. I will take Spore. <laughs> Okay, I, I will also. We take love Jiang Yimou. Yeah, <laughs> but also <laughs> there are the other wall. great Jiang Yimou movies. That's <laughs> right. I enjoy the Great Wall. I, it's it's, it's dancing kind of a terrible, on the side of the wall. The yo-yo, movie. the yo-yo, yeah. uh, beautiful There's yo-yo a lot to enjoy. There's a lot to roll your eyes at. <laughs> yeah. All right. Spore wins that one. Spore or Kind Hearts and Coronets. Oh, you know what? I'm going to give mm. that one to Kind Hearts. I am too. It's a strong film. Spore or Midnight Run? Oh, I got to go Midnight Run. Yeah, I'd go Midnight Run, too. Spore or The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo? David Fincher's version. David Fincher. I will say The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Spore or Field of Dreams? Got to go Field of Dreams. I will go with Spore. Baseball, Ray. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Here we go. One, two, two, three. three. Rock. Field of Dreams takes. Is what it is. Spore or Once Upon a Time in America? Um, oh, I'm gonna say spore. Yeah, I'll say spore too. Spore or the producers. This is the uh musical retelling yeah, filmed. I'll go with the producers from 25 or 25 2005. From 2025. Uh, I just cut some zeros out there <laughs> from the year 25. <laughs> You're saying the producers. I, oof, uh, I will too. I'm pretty wherever we where we are one, now you know Andy, what? what is it even it's matter? okay it's yeah at, at this going it's it's one spot so spore <laughs> landed in spot 279 out of 450 not super high in our chart uh thanks to me but <laughs> that's a 38 percent little low that's exceptionally low we've talked about a lot of great movies on our, I, on our show. i would very much like to hear you rationalize how low it is against your own ranking tell me it's higher than that it's definitely higher. Um, it's still ran. It's a tricky film. It's a film that I really uh, appreciate. I can enjoy it, but it's not something that I would return to a lot. So it lost more than the other Holland films. I landed in spot fourteen oh four out of forty three twenty seven, which is a sixty eight percent. Yeah, even that's too low. I I did not have trouble ranking this one, and in fact, I felt uh, at the end I got to the end and I felt really good about where it exists on my chart. It landed at uh, two oh one out of fourteen forty seven. That's an eighty six percent. Wow! It, yeah, I know, I know. Uh, and I, if I were to go by the algorithm, I should be at four and a half stars over. <laughs> this movie uh, over at letterbox.com slash the next reel. I'm not going to give it four and a half stars. I'm feeling like this is a four star experience for me. Um, okay. And I don't know how it's going to age, but I will give it a, I will give it a uh, heart. I definitely give it a heart. Maybe, maybe it's a heart that's been, you know, recently shot and is bleeding out. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> bleeding all over the for the cold snowy forest floor. <laughs> uh, you know, three point or three and a half for me. Um, with a heart, though, I, I really do enjoy this film. I think there's a lot of beautiful stuff in it. It's a tough story. It's an interesting story. I just, I did find it really mesmerizing. And geez, I mean, Mandat herself deserves an extra half star. Ugh. She's just so stinking good in the film. I really, really just, I, I, I was like, I have never seen her before, but I was like, I want to see her in more stuff. She was just that good on screen. Totally agree with you. So that means you're a four star then. No, 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 no. Well, it probably said, would have been a three-star film. You said an extra half star. Yeah, yeah, because three-star. Over three and a half. Uh, 
Yeah. So if am I the three, only one who does math then, around here? <laughs> so anyway, three and a half is Ram. <laughs> okay. Where do we go from here? This is the end of our series. What is next? I know at these series, you know, these, when we do these short series that they're, 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 we can, it's great to whip through them, but man, is it tough because I just want to keep going on about these yes. people. But, uh, we are going to be doing quite a shift. We're going to be jumping over to a series we've done in the past, movies and their remakes, but we put a twist on it this time. We're looking specifically at uh, French filmmaker Francis Weber and some of the films that he has done and the remakes of those. He's an interesting filmmaker in that he has a lot of movies that he has made over in France that have been remade over here in America, such as The Man with One Red Shoe, Buddy Buddy, uh, the Birdcage, The Toy, Father's Day, Pure Luck, Three Fugitives, Dinner for Schmucks. We are going to be looking at two of those. We're going to look at the original La Caja Fall and then The Birdcage. And then we're going to look at uh, Le Diner de Con and Dinner for Schmucks. So starting with La Caja Fall from 19, uh, what was that, 78? I'm excited about this one. I actually, this is this is one I have seen both of these. I think I've seen all of these movies, uh, I think. Going into this, wow. uh, I definitely the, the La Caja Fall. We actually uh, that's a that was a delightful thing that my French teacher made me watch in when the Birdcage came out, uh, oh, okay. which is which was a delightful little pairing. So I feel like I've already done this set. <laughs> I have only seen Dinner for Schmucks of these four films, <gasps> Wait um, a minute. which wasn't Wait a minute. yeah, which Wait. wasn't my favorite. So I'm curious to kind of dig into more of you these. You never saw the Birdcage. No, I had the opposite experience of you. I had a professor who saw it, who is so offended by it that uh, I was like, oh, well, okay, I guess I'll skip that one. And I just never bothered with it. I don't even know what to make of this experience. Yeah, I know. I'm so very it'll be, frustrated uh, it'll be a good experience to jump into these movies. I now. hope that the, I hope in particular, I hope that one's still good. And it wasn't just me. Yeah, it wasn't just me with my memory playing tricks because my memory of that movie was very high. Yeah. Oh, crud. I guess we'll find out, won't we? When the movie ends. Our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy? Oh, boy. Not today. Not today. Uh, Rough, rough going at Amazon. Not even a barrel to scrape the bottom of. But we were able to head back over to Letterboxd, our dear friends at Letterboxd.com. And it turns out that people from all over the world had things to say about this movie and about how much they didn't like it. Yeah, they just... uh, it, It was fun looking at the different reviews in different languages to see what people really felt. I don't know if this is going to be a new permanent thing that we do, but I'll tell you, I'm pretty excited about it today, is adding this extra element, this extra twist to our review segment, where we filter them through Google Translate and see how well the review translates both as a review and as a translation. Indeed. Indeed. Your mileage may Do you want to go first or shall I? No, you go, go ahead. All right. First up... I have a a Turkish review from Letterboxd.com by Kay Koskun, who says, uh, I'm not even going to try reading the Turkish because I don't speak that at all, but it translates to prolonged boredom. Check your phone charge. (laughs) Sometimes they... (laughs) I'm assuming that Kay Koskun watched it on his phone or her phone. Yeah, maybe. 
Uh, I I have one that is from Mordecai, and it is a Portuguese review uh, that I think really uh, really puts it just right when filtered through Google Translate. The scenery and photography are beautiful, but the plot is a mess to the point of being annoying. It is as if they had taken a professional ink and an expensive brush to draw a dick in the classroom wallet. <laughs> Oh, that slays me, Mordecai. You know, I'm going to just like that review just I did. I liked it hard. Thank you, Mordecai. (laughs) Seal of approval. Thanks, Letterboxd. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, Go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.